Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we will be in verses 6 through 15 this morning. Colossians chapter 2, find it on page 984 in the Pew Bibles. It's also printed in the worship folder. I'm sure it's on your phone also, that's just fine. Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's word. Colossians 2, starting in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Would you join me in a brief prayer? Father, this morning, would you consider us, would you help us to be people who are humble and contrite in heart and who tremble at your word, open our ears, open our hearts to receive what you are saying to us by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. It was April 21st of 1986 when the mystery of Al Capone's vaults aired on national television. It was hosted by none other than our good friend, Mr. Geraldo Rivera. Turns out there was a place called the Lexington Hotel. It used to be Al Capone's headquarters. And they discovered some previously unknown vaults beneath the building. For two hours, our mustachioed friend built the anticipation to a fever pitch. Here are some of his actual words. He says, now what if anything that vault contains, we don't know. This is an adventure. We're not going to be taking it together. What could possibly go wrong? Well, the moment of truth finally came, 31 million viewers tuned in to see what would happen when those vault doors came crashing down. After the dust settled, do you know what they saw? Absolutely nothing. Vaults were empty. Geraldo admitted years later that he was so humiliated by the whole thing that he went straight back to his hotel room after the taping, locked the door, unplugged the phone, and got, quote-unquote, tequila drunk. 
poor old Geraldo came up empty. Now, we're honest, we understand that coming up empty can really harm us, can it? Think of how much damage empty promises can do to you. Maybe at work there's a new position, a promotion, or a bump in pay that you have been expecting, and what happens if you get passed over yet again? Or what about a family member that has promised to be there with you through thick and thin? What happens when they leave you high and dry when you need them most? Or what about that dream? That thing that you have been pursuing that your heart has desired for so long and just when it feels like it's in your grasp, it disappears like a mirage under the hot desert sun. Coming up empty can do us real harm. It's true for us spiritually, isn't it? Maybe you feel distant from God and so you try to do something to jumpstart your spirituality. You turn to a TV preacher or some sort of guru. Maybe you look for a spiritual self-help book or try some new form of new age prayer. What happens though when the promises come up empty? You're worse off than where you started. You're empty-handed and you're crushed beneath the weight of a hill of empty promises. How is it we can avoid the trap of emptiness and instead have a full spiritual life? The way God wants us to have it. Well, our passage before us in Colossians shows us how it is that we can have full spiritual life. The Apostle Paul was writing to a young, discouraged church. They had started off well in the gospel, but then they had been told that their faith in Christ Jesus was defective. That they needed some add-ons if they were to have a full sort of spirituality. To this, Paul writes, and this is his main point. Stay where you are in Christ Jesus. That's the only place you will find fullness of spirituality. Stay where you are in Christ Jesus. We're going to see this as we move through our passage in two points. The first of which is in verses 6 through 8. Stay where you are. Because everything else is empty. The second in verses 9 through 15. Stay where you are because in Christ Jesus you are full. First, let's turn our attention to verses 6 through 8. Stay where you are because everything else is empty. Verses 6 and 7 make up really what is the heart of the book of Colossians. The First, we just finished with the introduction to the letter, an extended introduction, if you will, running all the way from chapter 1, verse 1, through 2, 5. Now we get to Paul's big idea, his big point. What does he want the Colossians to know? It's that they need to stay right where they are, right where they started with their faith in Christ Jesus. In Marion Robinson's book, Gilead, Pastor John Ames has a beautiful, is a beautiful illustration of this idea of remaining where you are intended to be. He's an old preacher living in the middle of nowhere, Iowa, in a place called Gilead. And uh, he has a child late in life, so late in fact that he's not going to grow, be around long enough for this child to truly know him. So he writes a series of letters, memoirs if you will, in the hopes of helping his son to feel like he at least knew who his father was. In these memoirs, he talks about staying in this small town of Gilead. 
See, he had opportunities to go out. He was a good preacher. Even his father, who himself was a preacher, encouraged him to go out to a bigger, better church in a bigger town. And yet, Pastor Ames kept saying, this is where I'm meant to be. One of his last entries in these memoirs, he said this. He says, I love this town. I think sometimes of going into the ground here is a last wild gesture of love. I too will smolder away the time until the great and general incandescence. This is a pastor that knew he was meant to be in a place, and that is where he would flourish. Paul has a similar point to the Colossians that if you want full spiritual life, you need to stay right where you are. He tells us that right there in verse 6. He says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, Colossians, you started off by believing Jesus by the gospel itself. You received Jesus, and that's right where you need to remain to grow as a Christian. Now, what does he mean exactly by that? I think of being with Jesus. I think of Jesus inside of me. What does it mean to stay in Jesus as if he's a location? Well, he teases it out with four descriptions, giving us an idea of what he means as we find them there in verse 7. The first of which is a tree. In Wheaton, we have some pretty large, beautiful trees. Um, They have roots that go deep into the ground. The roots provide both nourishment as well as stability of the tree. So when the wind comes, they don't get tipped right over. Well, in this image, God himself is the one pushing the roots of Christians deep into the soil, providing us with nourishment, providing us with stability. All that right there in Jesus. The second image is that of a building, rooted and built up. Uh, This is an image of progress. You know, buildings don't go up all at once. They go up brick by brick, if you will. And Paul reminds the Colossians that God himself is doing this activity of making them more and more into the people he wants them to be, brick by spiritual brick, if you will. That progress as a Christian doesn't happen overnight. It's a process that you can see as God changes you to be more like Jesus. The third description is uh, one of something sturdy. It's really the result of the first two. Uh, You can imagine like a a heavy chair that's well built that you could just plop down into. You don't have any worry that it's going to collapse under your weight. Paul says that they are to be established in the faith. That is, as God puts their roots into the ground and builds them up brick by brick, they're going to find that the very thing that they began believing in is sturdy. It's reliable. It's something they can count on no matter what comes their way. The end result of all these things is the fourth description. Thanksgiving. It's gratitude in the heart that's abounding. There's so much of it that it's running over the sides of the cup. All of this, he says, is what it is to stay right where you are in Christ. Now, I don't know if you are a new believer in Christ or if you've been walking for Jesus for more years than you can count. But you know this truth, don't you? That the way you progress as a Christian, the way your spirituality deepens, it's not by a shortcut. It's not by anything that you can do to to kickstart it. Uh, It's brick by brick, if you will. It's the, the steady walk with God, remaining in Jesus, Doing the very things that you started off doing in the, pray, in the faith. Simple prayers, 
attending church, sitting under the word, studying it yourself, fellowship with other believers. That's what it means to remain in Jesus. But we know that it's not all roses, right? You know, it doesn't always work out just like that. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you know there are seasons where it feels like God is far away. And maybe you've even seen some people carried off, if you will, away from their Gilead, away from their special place in Christ after some other way of pursuing spirituality. Well, Paul now turns to the other side of the coin. If he just told them what it is he wants most for them, now he tells them what he needs to warn them about in verse 8. He's warning them about spiritual add-ons to Jesus. And he uses the language of alarm. See to it. Watch out. Be on the lookout. Beware. Now, if you lived in this modern world for any length of time, you've probably grown immune to a lot of the warning signs we have around us. Uh, There's so many of them that it's easy to kind of tune them out. Uh, You know, speed limit signs, we take them as suggestions a lot of times. Uh, I'll I'll admit to being guilty of uh, not heeding the advice of the do not enter sign on the backside of this parking lot a time or two in my day. Um, You know, there's some signs that the consequence for them is just not very high, and so you don't pay all that much attention. Uh, One time I came across a warning sign that I paid very careful attention to. Uh, We were on a mission trip uh, somewhere and uh, driving around, and I just got the feeling we were somewhere we shouldn't be. And uh, at first it was just a feeling, and then a sign appeared which removed all doubt. The sign said, Danger, landmines. (laughs) Now, I'm no expert, but I know enough to turn the car around at that point, and we, we got out of there. Now, Paul puts in front of the Colossians a very serious warning, a sign of the greatest of import, if if you will. He tells them, watch out that someone does not carry you off, kidnap you out of your Gilead, out of your place in Christ. Now that's serious. What could do it? Well, according to verse 8, it's philosophy. Uh, This morning, if you're here and you're a a college student, you may be rejoicing at that, thinking this means you get to ignore the modern discipline of philosophy. Throw out Plato, throw out Nietzsche, in with some other elective, right? Um, But that's not what Paul has in mind here. The ancient concept of philosophy is much closer to what we would call an organized system of thought. Christianity would rightly be called a philosophy. The problem isn't that there's an organized system of thought, as if those are all to be avoided— The problem is this particular organized system of thought is defective. He says it with two words. He says it's empty deceit. It makes lots of promises. It sounds good, but it can't come through. It's useless. It's in fact all a big lie. And if you listen to it, it'll take you away from Jesus. Now, okay, Paul. We get that you don't like these false teachers that are among the Colossians. We get you don't like their message. But what is it specifically about the message that you don't like? Well, I'm glad you asked because Paul gives us three descriptions of what it is that's defective about this teaching. Think of them as three nails that he drives into the heart of this system of thought to show that it's dead as a doornail. The first is that it's human according to human tradition. 
says the, these false teachers are claiming that they have divine revelations, insight from God in the spiritual world, then why is it that their teaching sounds so much like what some people have been saying for a long time? If you can find, like Dorothy, a man behind a curtain claiming to be a wizard, chances are that's not a divine message from God. Secondly, it's earthly. That's in that phrase, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, that's a difficult phrase to interpret. I'm persuaded, with the help of commentators, that what Paul is referring to is how the ancients sometimes would think about the material world as we know it. All the stuff around us. They thought of it as being composed of certain basic elements. Fire, water, earth, air, things like that. And all these elements were controlled by powerful spiritual forces. If you could somehow find a way to manipulate or get on the right side of those spiritual forces, well then, you could make a pretty nice life for yourself here on this world. Paul says if you actually think about what they're saying, it actually is self-defeating. They're claiming to give you deeper spirituality, something transcendent to this world, and yet all they're really interested is in this earthly stuff. It's defective because it's human. It's defective because it's earthly. And now the biggest nail that he drives in the deepest. It's defective because it's not according to Christ. See, the false teachers were peddling something saying that you can have your Jesus plus some add-ons. We all love a good add-on. You'd rather have a sunroof on your rental car or get bumped up to first class on your trip. Yet with Jesus, you can't do that. Add-ons contradict Jesus and remove him from you. Paul says that this system of thought is not something you can have with your Jesus. It won't supercharge your faith. In fact, it will remove you from him altogether. Brothers and sisters, add-ons simply cannot coexist with Christ. I tell you this with a very heavy heart. Because I have, uh, my family's, testimony, our story of grace, comes by way of some circles that love their add-ons. We, we came through the Seventh-day Adventist church. Uh, maybe you don't know Seventh-day Adventist. Maybe you have lots of Adventist friends. Uh, I still have many friends in the Adventist church, and I've come to realize that some of them are wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, as I say that, I also have to tell you that the circles we were in, and many other circles, are really pushing Jesus plus a little more in such a way that you lose Jesus altogether. They'll tell you, yeah, believe in Jesus for your salvation, but then you have to, not an option, you have to worship on Saturday. Yeah, Jesus, that's well and good, but but what you need are the continued visions of our prophetess that lived in the 1800s. Yes, Jesus and all the things that go with the gospel, but what you really need is to avoid eating certain foods, and avoid wearing certain clothes. Friends, having come from a background like that, let me just tell you, it's useless. It's empty. It doesn't do anything except hide Jesus in his grace. Now, maybe you're not tempted to go off to the Adventist church or any other church like it, but maybe you're thinking about Or feeling like you need some sort of a spiritual silver bullet. 
Maybe you feel like you're not as close to God as you'd like. And so maybe if I just took a trip to the Holy Land and went to some holy sites, I might feel a little bit closer. Or maybe there's some ancient form of prayer that if I unearth, it's really going to give me full spirituality. Or maybe there's something in these walls, uh, something rather mundane that has become too large of an issue for you, so much so that it is acting as an add-on to Jesus. Would you hear Paul's warning here? Would you avoid yourself the heartache? You can have no add-ons if you will stay with Jesus. He is either everything or he's nothing. First, we see that you are to stay where you are because everything else is empty. Okay, Paul, we, we understand that. We understand you're saying this system of thought is empty, but I don't feel full in Jesus. What can you do for me at this point? Well, Paul now turns in verses 9 through 15 to show us how we are full in Christ. This is our second point. Stay where you are because in Christ you are full. I'm fascinated by the concept of the modern supercenter. Maybe you you don't like uh, shopping at these sorts of places, or maybe you do, but chances are you can't avoid it because they're so common. You know, like a a Walmart or a Super Target. Uh, It's the sort of place where you can go and you can spend all day there and buy everything your household needs. You can buy uh, baby supplies, stuff for your car. Uh, You can (laughs) buy groceries. Uh, You can even eat lunch there. You can get glasses. You name it. It's all there. Now, the retailers aren't doing that because they're altruistic and want to prevent you from burning up a lot of gas driving from one store to the other. They're doing it because they know if you stay right where you are, if you're convinced that that everything you need is right there, you'll spend more money in this one location. If the inventory is full, you're likely to stay right in the store. In 9 through 15, you can think of it as Paul laying out the spiritual inventory of what a Christian has in Jesus to convince them to stay right where they are, to continue in the faith that they started when they believed the gospel. He does it with these repeated phrases, in and with Christ. It's used a total of six times in these verses. It's communicating how the relationship we have with Jesus brings us the fullness of spirituality that we crave. As we look at it, we'll break it down into three sections to make it a little easier to digest. All of them showing us the fullness in Jesus. The first is in 9 through 10, is that we have full fellowship. The second is in 11 through the first half of 13, is that we have full life. And then the last one is in the second half of 13 through 15, that we have full freedom. First, let's look at full fellowship. In verse 9, Paul returns to the theme that he picked up in chapter 1, the idea of the incarnation. He said, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You know, we are right every Christmas to spend time wondering at the miracle of the incarnation. That the cosmic creator of everything would come to dwell in the body of a child. That's a mystery you'll never fully get your, your, uh, your head around. Paul goes back to the incarnation. He says it wasn't just a human body with a little bit of divinity sprinkled on top. The whole fullness of God inhabited this person of Jesus. God was truly there. 
continues to be there as Jesus lives forever. That's amazing to think about. What's even more amazing than what he says in verse 10? He says, and you have been filled in him. See, God didn't come down into human flesh just to walk around and have a stroll as a human. He didn't do it just to feel the Galilean air or to have a new experience that he could put under his belt. He did it so you and I could know him. He did it so that you could actually know the person of Jesus, and in so knowing the person of Jesus, you could know God himself. Christian, if you are a Christian, it means that you have come to know this Jesus, and you have full fellowship with God. Not just full fellowship with God, though, you also have full life, or more properly said, full new life, in verses 11 through 13. There he uses two images, that of circumcision and that of baptism. With circumcision there in verse 11, he talks about the stripping away of the sinful nature, which Christ does to us as believers when we put our trust in him and accept the gospel message. If you've uh, seen the movie or read the book, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Shredder by C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, um, there's a, a story in there about a character named Eustace, which illustrates this quite well. Uh, Eustace was a, a greedy little guy, and he grabbed some forbidden treasure and got cursed and turned into a horrible scaly dragon. Uh, now, no matter what Eustace tried, he couldn't get the scales to come off. He clawed at them. He rolled in water. He, he had his friends try and help, but nothing they did could remove his horrible dragon flesh. That is until Aslan showed up. And Aslan told Eustace, I can clean you if you'll let me. And Eustace agrees, and Aslan uses his claws to tear away the dragon flesh, cutting deeper than he ever thought possible. And at the end, Eustace emerges. It's as if he is born again as a boy. That's what happened with you as a Christian when you came to Christ, isn't it? Oh, not that you're a perfect person. But you're no longer dominated by your sinful nature like you used to be. Because Christ tore it away. Not only did he tear it away, the second image is also of baptism. This, in this image, you are going along with Jesus through his death and resurrection. As Jesus was hanging up there on the cross, it's as if you were there with him. And when he went into the ground, it was as if you were buried with him. And when he was resurrected from the dead, it was as if God's very power raised you from the dead. All that happened, even though you yourself did not do those things, through your association with Jesus, all those things are true of you. Like being strapped to the back of a skydiver who jumps out of a plane. You may not be in control, but you truly go along for the ride. Full fellowship, full life, and finally, full freedom. Verses 13 through 15. He, in here, there's two concepts. One of an IOU and one of a victory march. The IOU comes with this idea of uh, something that... Uh, it comes with this idea of a debt or a note of debt that is nailed to the cross. Uh, Paul's imagining there's a contract between all of humanity and God that says we owe our allegiance and everything in our lives should be 
for God's glory. And when we fall short of that, there is a document of debt that at some point will come due. He says when you became a Christian, the forgiveness of your sins means that God took that note of debt and put it up on the cross as Jesus was hanging and nailed it right there. It's a saying that you have full forgiveness. There's no more record of guilt before God. He also tells you that you have full victory over God's enemies. In verse 15, he gets to this image of a victory march. It's as if God is the general and he's marching into the city where all of God's people dwell and behind him are all of his enemies that have been defeated. They've been stripped of their armor, they've been stripped of their weapons, and they've been stripped of their power to make you fear them. See, at the cross of Jesus, once and for all, when Satan and all of his arrayed armies of hell thought they would have their moment of victory, instead they had their moment of defeat. So now you have nothing to fear because you follow the conquering general, Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you see the fullness of what you have in Jesus? Do you see what you have? Oh, it may not feel like it all the time. I, I get that. But do you see what is truly yours because of your relationship to Jesus? Where could you go to find anything else like that? Maybe this afternoon you spend a little time thinking about how this fullness you've had in Christ over the years has shown itself. Write it in your journal. Talk about it at lunch. Spend just a few minutes to God praying about it. Dwelling on the fullness you have in Jesus protects you from being tempted to wander off to any sort of spiritual add-on. They don't work anyway. But what you have in Jesus right where you are there is everything you could possibly need. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm certainly glad that you're here. I understand that this might seem strange to you to go into such detail about what a guy wrote 2,000 years ago in a letter to a church somewhere in Turkey. But I want to take this opportunity to just ask you a question if you'll entertain it. Do you ever wonder to yourself if life is as it should be? Do you ever get the feeling that maybe your life isn't the way it's supposed to be, that there's more to it, that you're missing out on something? Well, if so, friend, let me just suggest to you that what the Bible says is something you should investigate. Because it says that you will never find fullness until you come to the one whom you were created for. That you were made to be in a relationship with God, and that can only happen when you come to know this person Jesus. Now, if you don't know how that happens, maybe you have a Christian friend, you can ask them. You you can come down afterward. I'd love to explain it to you. But I don't want you to leave without thinking about this question. How is it that I can have fullness of spirituality? As we looked at this passage, we've seen, as Christians, we are to stay where we are in Christ, because that's where fullness is found. We stay where we are because everything else is empty. We stay where we are because in Christ, we're already full. And in just a second, after we sing a song, we're going to get to celebrate that fullness together as we come to the Lord's table. There we'll see the the full fellowship we have. It's a meal that Jesus invites us to, to remember our relationship with him. 
there we'll find full life. His body given for us, his life taken so that we might have new life in him. There we'll find full freedom as we remember how his blood set us free from our sins. Brothers and sisters, you have all you need in Jesus. Would you stay where you are? Experience that fullness afresh. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are in awe of what you have done for us. We are in awe that you would invite us to know you. And yet we know how easily we can be tempted to search after spiritual add-ons that would take us away from you. Would you, once again, satisfy us with what we have in you so that we would have no cause to wander? Will you help us to stay right where we are in you? Bless us as we come now to your table. We pray in your name. Amen.